This is episode 143 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Kelsey Day. She's an SLP with seven years of experience in the acute care setting. She received her master's degree from Northwestern University, where she was trained in dysphagia diagnostics and video fluoroscopy by Dr. Jerry Logeman. Kelsey now serves as the lead SLP at California State Medical Center, a level two trauma center and primary stroke center in downtown LA, where she supervises and mentors a team of nine SLPs. She specializes in dysphagia care for the critically ill, multi-trauma, and tracheostomy ventilator-dependent populations. Kelsey launched the FEES program at her hospital to facilitate early swallow intervention for the mechanically ventilated population. She currently serves as a mentor for the Medical SLP Collective and guest lectures at California State University Fullerton. And I am so glad that Kelsey agreed to do this episode with me. She is in the thick of dealing with these patients with COVID-19, and she's got some really incredible insights that I'm very grateful for her to share with all of you. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Um, I just want to acknowledge MedBridge Education for a minute. They are always so wonderfully supportive of SLPs, um, really high-quality, top-notch materials that they produce. And especially right now, in light of COVID-19, they've got some really great resources up on their site. They're free for anybody. Um, a lot about telepractice, since a lot of us are all of a sudden finding ourselves now teletherapists. Um, But this is all in addition to their usual huge library of all other medical SLP topics. Um, So just want to let you know that we do have that MedBridge deal going. If you use promo code SYP, uh, you can get the premium plan of MedBridge for only $95 for one full calendar year from the date you sign up. So what is included in the premium plan that gives you access to live webinars for ASHA CEUs, the clinician mobile app, their home exercise builder, patient education tools, and the patient mobile app. So some really great features that you get for an entire year for only 95 bucks. Um, some really high quality webinars they have too. Um, I mean, think of any wonderful researcher or clinician in our field, and I'm sure they've got a, a webinar on on the on MedBridge for you to listen to. So if you are interested in taking advantage of that deal, use promo code SYP, or you can go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP, and you'll automatically see the premium plan pulled up there for $95 for one full calendar year. So whenever you do use that promo code SYP, a portion of that does go back into keeping this Swallow Your Pride podcast going. So thank you, MedBridge, for your support as always, and go check them out. Hi, Teresa. Hello. All right. I am so excited today to have our dear friend, Kelsey Day. This is just going to be kind of a fun chat. Fun. I don't We think it's fun because we're nerds, but it's going to be fun. But in the trenches with with this COVID-19 right now, with Kelsey being, you know, really in the ICU all the time. Yeah, I really just wanted to kind of talk about what you guys are experiencing, what you're seeing clinically. I know we've there's a lot of research that's coming out, a lot of papers that are coming out about, you know, some of the first cases in Wuhan and Really, we just wanted to talk about is is that what we're seeing? Is that how these patients are presenting? And then 
you know, where do we go from here? Because I think, you know, this is just the beginning, unfortunately. And what's going on in the ICUs is, you know, we're really thinking is probably going to put a big burden on the rest of the healthcare system as far as SNFs and, and LTACs and, you know, outpatient centers. So I'm going to dive into all that. So without further ado, Kelsey, tell the people who you are. All right. So my name is Kelsey Day. I'm an acute care speech pathologist. I am the lead SLP at California Hospital Medical Center. So I mentor and supervise a team of nine SLPs. Um, I focus primarily on intensive care. With I work with dysphagia, with tracheostomy, and ventilator dependency. Awesome. Yes. Thanks for coming. You know, I think the first point we were talking about is really how different this is being approached in all settings. And, you know, not even within the settings, but within even different facilities and and the way that COVID's being managed in one place is different than how it's being managed in another place. And one place might be doing endoscopy, one place might not be doing it. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, what I'm really trying to show here is that we're all just trying to do the best we can in the settings and the, I guess, hands we were dealt. And we're not going to make any blanket statements today that this is how you should be practicing and this is how your facility should be running things because I think everyone's just trying to do the best they can. <laughs> kind of just really what I'm seeing too. Um, you know, my mobile fees company serves as probably about 40 different SNFs on a regular basis. And there's, I'd say probably half of them just aren't doing any right now at all. And then there's some that, you know, I even I've signed five new contracts in the last two weeks because now they're getting all these patients from the hospital post-extubation that didn't have a swallow study done in the hospital. Yeah. So it's, it's really two different worlds. I've got, like I said, some buildings that are completely shut down and others that are just, what are we doing with all these patients now? Because yeah, they're slammed. And I mean, I think in acute care, that's, that's weighing really heavily on us because we're realizing the gravity of our decisions in ICU right now. I mean, ICU decisions are always always very serious. Um, The outcomes, the the stakes are just very high, but I think even more so right now because we don't know where our patients are discharging to exactly and what the policies and procedures are in the locations that they might be discharging to. So I think that we're doing our best to manage the risks and benefits relative to the patient, relative to the health of our entire healthcare facility, but also trying to think through the consequences of potential readmissions related to undiagnosed subclinical dysphagia. And, you know, that's something that we're still figuring out. And it's going to take a lot of teamwork, a lot of flexibility, and just adaptability is the name of the game right And, And I think this is, you know, this is where I think our profession needs to come together now more than ever in establishing those relationships between the different levels of care. And, you know, Kelsey and I were talking before we started recording, you know, and, and about how it's it's important for them to educate these patients on, you've obviously just gone through a very traumatic experience, but please don't forget to follow up on, follow up with an ENT or follow up with an outpatient follow study in, you know, two to three months if things still are not improving. And, and I think the, the role of the ICU SLP at this point is just doing so much education as far as that and preparing them for what might come, but also establishing these relationships with the other SLPs that might be getting these patients too. Because I think, you know, before we know it, a lot of these SNF and home health SLPs are just going to be getting this whole wave of patients. And, and you know, I think as much education and collaboration we can have between the levels of care, the easier it'll be on everybody. Right. And Teresa, if I can jump in there. I think 
that you just touched on something really important. My role in acute care, I think has my role in terms of patient and family caregiver education has never been more important on follow-up and continuing care recommendations. So the types of discussions I'm having with my patients who are, let's say, COVID positive and post-extubation, a lot of these patients who are being successfully extubated in my personal experience so far have been relatively young, perhaps in their 30s, some of them with possible cognitive deficits, but a lot of them cognitively intact. And we can have that sort of risk benefit discussion where I can say, you know, in under typical circumstances, I would be performing an endoscopy for you right now. I'm not sure if that's the best route for you, for our healthcare system right now. I'm giving you these oral trials. You seem to be doing well. But what I cannot do is I cannot exclude the possibility of dysphagia for you, of a swallowing disorder, of silent aspiration. I need you to give me verbal teach back. What are the symptoms of dysphagia? Teach that back to me. What are the symptoms of aspiration? Teach that back to me. And then what what do I want you to do when you discharge here? Well, I want you to monitor yourself for these symptoms. I want you to follow up with your primary care physician. If you're discharging to a nursing facility, I want you to ask to be followed by a speech pathologist there. I'm giving them verbal and written instructions on, you know what, under typical circumstances, I'd be asked, I'd be referring you right now for video stroboscopy and for voice therapy. That is not the priority at this time, but realize that these are options still available to you when times change, when these procedures are more widely available. Kind of educating the patient, if they can, in, in their caregivers, having them perform teach back to you. They understand the, the possible symptoms of undiagnosed or subclinical dysphagia that we could be missing in acute care for those patients who we can't get instrumentals on, asking them to ter- teach back our recommendations for follow-up all of those things. So I think our, our role in education, patient and caregiver education has never, never been more important. Awesome. Our role in education com- totally extends to physicians right now. And what we need our physician colleagues to understand is that just because we might be making more decisions at the bedside for these patients than we normally would for other populations does not negate the importance or the value of those instrumental exams for other populations at the time, and also for these patients in their future. What we're doing is we're saying we are we are hearing the risks right now. We, we're accepting these risks and having really careful risk-benefit analyses conducted for our patients and deciding that maybe the risks outweigh the benefits of an instrumental today, but that's not necessarily the case in a few weeks. So, yeah, I think our role is really important to, like you just said, in educating our colleagues that just because we're making a decision at the bedside doesn't mean that an instrumental, a a decision made via instrumental wouldn't have been better. Yeah, I love that, Kelsey. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what you have been seeing as far as clinical presentation, because I think one thing I hear you say, Kelsey, is the importance of, of education with these patients, but are we sure that cognitively they are completely intact? And I think that's a big, a big conversation we've been having. And, you know, I know we were talking about that in the SLP collective, that, that the way some of these patients are presenting is, is not what we expected either. Right. And I don't think that I have a large enough sample size under my belt yet to start to comment on general patterns 
But what I have seen so far are a handful of patients who are very young in their 30s, previously healthy without significant underlying medical conditions, who are COVID positive, intubated for about two weeks, and extubated and with some level of cognitive dysfunction. And I think that my team has been kind of discussing, what do you think is going on here? Are they still weaning from sedatives? Maybe this is just medication induced. And then we're following with these patients. And then sometimes we're noticing, okay, it's not improving in the way that we would typically see recovery once the sedatives have been weaned, once we're doing behavioral interventions for cognition in ICU that would normally reduce delirium. Um, And when these patients aren't responding as well, we're kind of starting to question if there might be some element of hypoxic brain injury or some other mechanism of neurologic injury for these patients is currently unclear. So it's something that, you know, I don't see a clear pattern on. There definitely are a few patients whose cognitive presentations are different than expected and who we need to monitor closely. And I think that we shouldn't forget about the potential cognitive ramifications of this disease process. What about, I've been hearing a little bit about how they're, it, it, it's almost that some of them are presenting with like brainstem stroke symptoms. If, if you're saying, you know, referring to brainstem stroke symptoms, I think by that I would understand maybe severe dysarthria, absent swallow function, severe UES dysfunction, or potentially loss for drive of ventilation. I have not yet personally seen those things. And actually, I think we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the clinical presentations that we are seeing in these patients. But we have actually seen better swallow function than we anticipated for the length of intubation. And now is that is that inaccurate because these patients aren't receiving instrumentals. Who knows if my assessment of them having good swallow function is actually accurate. But so what what I'm seeing is the patients, the first wave of patients who are being extubated in our ICUs right now are generally young 30 to 40 something year olds with without any history of dysphagia or dysphagia risk factors who have been intubated 10 to 15 days. And for those cases, I've expected very severe laryngeal dysfunction post-extubation and severe post-extubation dysphonia and dysphagia that we actually have been seeing less than expected. Um, I think that these patients are making really rapid recoveries when they're young and in their 30s, at least the few that that we I've been seeing. So that's kind of been an interesting finding, especially with all of the proning that's going on in ICU with, into, with endotracheal tubes in situ. I think that we were just expecting laryngeal dysfunction. And that's not to say that maybe there isn't laryngeal dysfunction that's subclinical and I'm just not recognizing because I'm not scoping these patients. But yeah, I actually we actually are having better outcomes than anticipated at my facility. And I mean, one thing too that I have to commend our intensivists for is that they have taken ownership of the potential long-term implications for haphazard or emergent intubations. And they've said, well, you know what, we are going to kind of change the parameters for a rapid response um, being called within our facility for patients who are COVID suspected or positive. So typically in acute care, if a patient's on the floor and they start satting 92% with a heart rate of 
70 or 80, no one is really batting an eye. But our intensivists have kind of changed parameters and asked for RRTs and being called very early for these patients to prevent emergent intubations. So what they're doing is they're they're assessing these patients clinically very, very early on at the first signs of any deterioration and then making the decision for early controlled intubations in a better setting so that clinicians aren't just haphazardly throwing PPE on, not that that's happening, but, you know, throwing PPE on and waiting potentially minutes too long to intubate patients during um, emergencies or, you know, doing so under emergent uncontrolled conditions. Kelsey, can you talk a little bit about, uh, it's, I feel like it's been a hot topic in the last few days of some hospitals are doing it and some aren't doing it is the proning. Mm-hmm. Are, are you guys, and I know some SLPs have really tried to, you know, take an education role of, of how to, I guess, carefully prone someone that is intubated and please don't destroy my patient's airway while you're doing it. And <laughs> I didn't know if that was, that was anything that you guys or that you've taken upon. You know, over the past week, I've seen a huge surge in our intubated patients being proned. And I know just over the past several days, our hospital is looking for maybe volunteers from our physical and occupational therapy colleagues to be on kind of prone teams just to kind of use their skills. Because if our physical therapy colleagues sense this is low, lower than it typically is, maybe they can multi-skill and kind of redirect their skills into other other uses that are going to benefit our patients as a whole. So we're definitely proning patients. I haven't yet, but I recognize that starting Monday will take a bigger role in kind of walking the units, observing the positioning of our patients in prone, and maybe speaking with the nurse to say that patient's neck is looking hyperextended. Is there anything we can do about that to, to kind of put that neck in a more neutral position to reduce risk for laryngeal injury related to the endotracheal tube. So I do think that there's a role for us. And kind of over the past week, I'm just starting to see more proning and just over the past few days, starting to recognize my role there. So that's definitely something I'm going to take a more active role in going forward. Beautiful. Last night, this whole thing just like hit me like a ton of bricks and I ended up counting I think there's, I have 12 close colleagues that are COVID positive right now. And I just keep thinking if this train keeps going, who's left to take care of these patients? Mm -hmm. So, so that's something that, you know, I, I started, I was talking to one of my friends who's an OT and she was saying the same thing. She said, they're starting to cross train us to do, you know, things that some PTs are doing and, and, you know, it's just, we've got to do what we can do to try to help these patients and just get them out of the hospitals as fast as we can. And, you know, Teresa, what you just said, you know, if we start getting sick as frontline clinicians, who's left to help our patients? And, you know, this has been one of my biggest soapboxes from the beginning. When the time the first case hit Los Angeles, I was telling my team, we need to protect ourselves because if we are all sick, who will manage these patients with severe post-extubation dysphagia? Our, our our other colleagues might not be equipped to handle this. We need to stay safe. We need to stay healthy. And I think going as far back as like March 20th, I was out there saying speech pathologists, the types of procedures that we're doing are likely aerosol generating. I mean, we are in very close proximity to our patient's upper air digestive tracts while we are doing things that will elicit spontaneous coughing, even if we 
hold back on our attempts to elicit volitional costs. When we, what we're doing of providing oral trials to patients with dysphagia who are likely to aspirate those trials are, are going to mobilize secretions. They're going to produce aerosols. We're doing endoscopies. We're doing video fluoroscopy. We're doing oral motor and cranial nerve exams. And we're suctioning these patients' oral cavities and or tracheostomies. So one thing that I've been saying, you know, since, since March 20th was that speech pathologists should be wearing appropriate PPE for potentially aerosol-generating procedures, especially SSLPs in intensive care units, when you don't know what aerosol-generating procedure was just conducted in that room before you walked in. So I've been a huge, yeah, I've been a huge advocate for my team wearing an N95 all day across all patients. In times of pandemic, we should assume that all patients have this disease, are asymptomatic carriers, even if they're not being currently worked up for it. And all of our procedures are potentially aerosol generating. And I'm not to say that we should be taking PPE from professionals like respiratory therapists and intensive care nurses and emergency room physicians who do need them more than we do. But so we need to be judicious with the types of patients that we're seeing. But if we're even seeing one patient a day for swallow evaluations, perhaps we can wear that N95 extended use throughout the day and then protect it with disposable surgical masks that are of better supply. So there are other options out there. I just really want to make sure that our speech pathologists on the front line, especially in intensive care um, and in acute care in general, are really protecting themselves and understand kind of the seriousness of the types of clinical exams that we're doing and the potential for exposure to us to areas with very high viral load. I think, you know, Asha just came out with that that statement on aerosol-generating procedures, and I think Someone had asked me yesterday, do you have any research that what we do is aerosol generating? And to me, no, I don't have any papers off the top of my head. But to me, it's almost common sense. I mean, you, you could just be doing a three ounce water challenge with someone and they can elicit a cough. You know, I, I don't think anything that we do is specifically, you know, people are arguing that, that endoscopy is the most aerosol generating. And I, I don't agree with that. But some people may think otherwise. But I think even just doing a clinical exam or anything can can elicit a cough with what we're doing. Yeah. And I, well, those are, and I think the debate here is, well, those are supposed to be larger droplets. So that would be a droplet precaution, not airborne precaution. But we do know that especially in intensive care, so many different procedures are being um, performed on these patients that could be aerosolizing in the rooms before and after we come and go. Also, I mean, I know that the goal is to reduce the amount of patients on high flow nasal cannula because that is aerosolizing, but that's not an option. With the limited number of ventilators that there are, we're going to have to start using high flow nasal cannula. And I've seen patients in a wing designated for high flow nasal cannula, COVID positive patients. So then, you know, I had to go into an entire wing of patients who are COVID positive, all on high flow nasal cannula at flow rates like 60 liters a minute. So we're just assuming that an entire wing is aerosolized. So yeah, we, we just need to make sure that we're understanding these things, that we're protecting ourselves. There's no way that an intensivist or a respiratory therapist can extubate a COVID positive patient in a full hazmat suit in a pepper. And then 30 minutes later, I walk in the room with a, with a droplet mask. Absolutely not. So yeah, I mean, there's some common sense that needs to happen. There is research out there. The quality of evidence is variable. Um, I think that on top of that, on top of research, as much as we love research, we just need to use common sense. All right. What's next? 
I think we should kind of maybe touch on what if in facilities where instrumentation isn't an option, kind of what is an option? How are people managing? What are the implications of that? Yeah. And I think it's a a little different for me in acute care. There isn't actually a blanket policy on me not performing fees or video fluoroscopy for these patients. We've just agreed that it'll be a case-by-case basis, largely by my discretion, and then through a discussion with me and the medical team. And so far, I haven't personally believed that a fees has been necessary for any of my COVID um, positive or suspected patients. I have had one case where I did feel that video fluoroscopy was necessary. Um, there was a patient admitted from a skilled nursing facility with multiple historical risk factors for dysphagia, um, who was admitted with maybe aspiration pneumonia versus COVID. And the nurse reported that the patient was showing overt signs of aspiration every time she attempted to give oral meds or a PO diet. And the patient was on high flow nasal cannula and we were still waiting for those COVID results. And I saw the patient at bedside and said, you know, I think that the reason this patient's hospitalized could very well be due to aspiration-related complications from maybe an underlying or undiagnosed dysphagia from their historical risk factor. Um, So for this patient, I kept him NPO until we actually got the COVID result the next day, which came back negative. And now that goes into a whole different conversation on is a negative really a negative? What is the false negative rate, right? But then at a, at that point in time, since we had, I think, I think what I've seen out there is a false negative rate between, you know, 15 to 30%. So I'm going to say, okay, physician, I, we have probably, let's say a 70% chance that this patient is actually COVID negative. Do we think that risk benefit wise, it might be a good idea to take this patient down for video fluoroscopy to mask the patient, to take the patient off of high flow and to get them down for video fluoroscopy to see if maybe aspiration pneumonia is why they're here or COVID is why they're here. And if the patient's safe to eat by mouth at this time. So, you know, we did move forward with one of those exams. I think everything needs to go on a case by case basis right now. You know, I've had a few people ask, you know, how is your mobile fees business doing? Are you completely out of business? And the answer is no, not at all. And I think what's what a lot of people don't understand is a big part of our role in the skilled nursing setting at this time. Well, it's always to keep these patients out of the hospital. But at this time, a lot of these hospitals are saying, don't you, you your patient's not welcome here. Basically, we're not even accepting patients. Do everything you can at the skilled nursing level to keep the patient there and not in the hospital. So I think our role is even elevated there a little bit more in doing as much as we can there to keep the patients out of the hospital. As you were talking about before, we we don't want to get in this vicious cycle of not getting the right care that they need at skilled nursing and having to end up going back to the hospital. And And I mean, I think recognizing that the provider's of course, you need to be careful and just recognize what is a what is the fees? What is an exam in a skilled nursing facility going to contribute to the medical plan? If a patient has been on a puree and mildly thick liquid diet in skilled nursing for four months, and we're just trying to see if the patient can have thin liquids, is right now the best time to perform that exam? I don't think so. But if a patient is developing potential some pulmonary complications that might be related to to dysphagia or to aspiration. And we cannot 
determine what a safe diet level would be for the patient at bedside, then an instrumental might be indicated because it could keep this patient out of the hospital where they could likely contract COVID and bring it back to the nursing facility. I mean, so this is all, there's just so many layers of complex risk benefit analyses that are just happening on a minute by minute basis. I even have, there's a little section of my report that I always document medical necessity. So I think, I think, isn't that what we do? Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't know why that's changed. <laughs> I don't know why all of a sudden that's a huge thing. Like we have to make sure it's medically necessary. Like I'm pretty sure I've never, I don't want to say never, but I'm pretty sure the fees that I do are because they are medically necessary. And I think people are losing sight of all these other factors. Like you said, air dehydration, malnutrition, all of these things can eventually cause, you know, a medical episode that we're trying to avoid. So, yeah. Yeah. And actually, sorry, I think that I just jumped straight into instrumentals without us talking that much about kind of how we're triaging clinical swallow exams a lot. So we're getting orders for tons of patients who are COVID positive for clinical swallow evaluations. And what we're doing is just trying to reduce the exposure of staff to, to our COVID positive patients as much as possible, but still serve our patients. So for example, I received a consult on a patient who was elderly, who was intubated for over two weeks, who was extubated to high flow nasal cannula actually, and whose respiratory rate was 40 on high flow nasal cannula. And then they gave us a, a consult and asked, can this patient eat by mouth today? And it doesn't take me going in that room to say, no, per my clinical judgment, this patient is unlikely to eat safely by mouth today. So I could, so I wrote a swallow evaluation indirectly, made it very clear in my note that I didn't directly interact with the patient and I didn't bill for that exam. But then, you know, the following days, we did go in the room and follow up with that patient. So, so I think we can take it case by case. And there are some days when we don't need to go into the room and we, we can write a note and give our recommendations to our colleagues without billing for those exams, even though they are skilled and we're still offering a skilled service. And then sometimes when it is necessary that we go into the room to assess the patient directly. Yeah. For example, I just got a consult for a COVID positive case yesterday. And the nurse said that she felt that the patient appeared, they might have some dysphagia. The patient had a history of dementia and a history of stroke. And the patient's baseline diet was unclear. So they put in a speech consult. Patient's COVID positive. The patient was actually not intubated, was just placed on supplemental oxygen. But so what I was able to do was to review the chart and say, you're right, this patient might very well have an underlying chronic dysphagia. We need to obtain records from the prior facility and know what diet that person was already on. And I obtained those records and found out that patient was already on a puree and mildly thick liquid diet. And now the patient was receiving some supplemental oxygen, but was not intubated. So was my direct evaluation really necessary at that time? Did I need to expose myself and potentially my other patients by seeing that one patient? I don't think so. So I was able to write an indirect note there as well because I had was able to obtain the information I needed from the prior facility. So I think it's really important that SLPs are communicating if your patient goes to acute care from a from a skilled nursing facility that you make every effort to communicate the prior diet level to the acute care therapist and then vice versa. 
Can I, Kelsey, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay. So <laughs> Kelsey, Kelsey is an amazing, how do I even describe you? She's amazing at documentation and it's one of her wonderful talents is how she documents things for someone who is struggling with how do I pass this patient on to the next level of care, knowing that I did not, was not able to do their instrumentation. How would you suggest someone document that? Because I think to me, it's, it's, I, I hate using the word common sense because it's, it's a little more formulated than that. But I think documenting that due to this global pandemic and due to the risk factors that are still, you know, running rampant in the hospital at this time, instrumentation was not pursued. And I'm just wondering if you can kind of, I know that's been a big thing as our colleagues are like, how do I even document that? I just feel like I'm, you know, shortchanging the patients and we know that's not the mm-hmm. case. I mean, I think one thing to potentially say, so if we're talking about a patient who, let's say, like, for example, a patient who is in his 30s with no medical histories, COVID positive, he's intubated 12 days, right? I see him post-extubation. Within a few days, he seems to be tolerating an oral diet at bedside. What does that mean? We can get into it. But, you know, the patient's not having immediate distress. They're not showing overt signs of aspiration. We know that this patient might be silently aspirating, might have a subclinical dysphagia. So I think something that you could write in, in that situation is that the patient has acute risk factors for dysphagia, but is not demonstrating overt signs of aspiration, of airway compromise, of respiratory distress with oral intake, and that the goal for functional oral intake in the acute care setting is met, but that an underlying subclinical dysphagia or silent aspiration is not excluded, that this patient should be monitored very closely for potential complications related to aspiration or to dysphagia, and that instrumentation should be completed as soon as possible in the next level of care. Beautiful. Thank you, my friend. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. going to place a huge burden on the next levels of care after acute care to kind of pick up the pieces of things that might have been missed or just weren't missed, but it was decided that the risk was too high. So yeah, definitely it's, it weighs really heavily on me that as an acute care clinician, I can't do every instrumental exam that I would want to do. And, you know, that's really challenging and it puts us in a huge state of kind of moral, ethical distress. What are we doing? What's right? Um, You know, and I think we just have to offer compassion to our colleagues here, understand that everyone's doing the best that we can. We need to be flexible. We need to communicate, understand that taking a hard stance anyway is probably not, is probably the only way to lose. Yeah. And that the lines of communication need to be open, but between caregivers, between providers right now more than ever. And it goes both ways. I mean, when I discharge a patient and they're going to the next level of care and they didn't receive the instrumental swallow study that I, under normal circumstances, would have wanted to complete for the patient, it's important that I communicate with the providers in the next level of care. Watch out for these things. This exam was not conducted. When it's appropriate, please order this exam Um, But it goes the other way, too. We, as acute care SLPs, need to be receiving all of the relevant information that we can from the sending facilities. So, I mean, I think what I'm taking from this is just teamwork between, you know, the speech pathologist, the patients, the patient and themselves and their caregivers, the physician, the dietitian, the respiratory therapist, 
all, all of the people that make up a team really need to work closely together right now and to say, okay, if we proceed with plan A, what are the potential outcomes? If we proceed with plan B, what are the potential outcomes there? You just kind of try to play through all of the different scenarios and then decide what's best for the patient, what's best for our entire healthcare system as a whole. All right. I think that we've done a good dive into all this. I think that just my final note to everyone would be to please exercise compassion for your colleagues, not only just your speech pathology colleagues, but our other medical um, other medical colleagues as well, who are all just doing the best they can with what they have right now. And to still not to forget to exercise compassion to our patients and to their caregivers and their family members who are going through an unprecedented challenge right now, emotionally, physically, mentally. So I just hope that that's something everyone can take from this. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so, so much. Thanks, Teresa. Yes. All right. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank Thank you so much to all of you for listening.